Well, good morning. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you at some point. I'll be in the lobby after the service. Um, and I do just want to say, um, if you're someone who does give to uh, year-end things, um, we would love for you to consider giving to Highlands. Um, I believe that God is doing a great work here, and um, I would love for you to partner with us in that. So thank you so much for those of you who do give um, regularly to our church, and um, we really do appreciate that. Today, we're continuing um, this series uh, talking, uh, what we're doing in this series is going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one and two, and we're looking at these uh, numerous times where Matthew quotes from the Old Testament and says that um, Jesus is fulfilling the prophets, and we're going and we're looking at um, what he's actually talking about. What, where was he quoting from? And so to catch us up in Matthew 1 and 2, what's happened so far is Matthew has said that Jesus is this promised king of blessing. And um, he's going to be called Emmanuel. He's going to be the great shepherd from Bethlehem. And here in Matthew chapter 2, we get one of the most challenging parts of the Christmas story. And this is part of the story that um, is often left out of Christmas pageants and uh, kids' story Bibles and things. And that is Jesus running for his life with his family to Egypt. He goes to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill him. What Matthew's showing us is that Jesus is being oppressed from the very beginning of his life. Jesus is being attacked. He's being opposed from the very beginning of his life. Why is this happening? Why all the drama? Can't God protect his own son? And isn't that the question that we often ask as well? I think that one of the most challenging parts of following God is that so often it seems like we're in Egypt. Is that true for you? That one of the things that makes it hard to walk with God, to believe in God, to be faithful to God, is it feels like so often you're in Egypt. Egypt is the place of disappointment. Egypt is the place where you had dreams, you had ideas for what you wanted your life to look like, you had plans, but you're here. You're not there. Egypt is the place of suffering. It's the place where people get sick and they have debilitating illnesses for decades. It's the place where family members care for them for decades. It's the place where people of all ages are diagnosed with cancer and die. Egypt is the place where there's financial struggle. Egypt is the place where there are relationships that are broken. Egypt is the place where you feel attacked. Egypt is the place where you feel oppressed. Egypt is the place where you feel lonely, where you feel anxious, where you feel depressed. Egypt is the place where you want to have kids, 
and you can't. Egypt is the place of suffering. And so often it seems like that's where we are. Where is God when we're in Egypt? Matthew says that Jesus has gone to Egypt. Jesus is being opposed and oppressed in order to fulfill the prophets. So today we're going to talk about three questions. First, what is this prophecy that Matthew is alluding to? What's the prophecy? Second, how does Jesus fulfill the prophecy? And third, what can it teach us about walking with God in Egypt? So, what is the prophecy? How does Jesus fulfill it? And what can that teach us about walking with God in Egypt? If you have a footnote in your Bible, um, which many Bibles do, um, it tells you that Matthew is quoting in Matthew 2.15 when he says, out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting from the book of Hosea. And so that's where we'll be today in Hosea chapter 11. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, um, Hosea chapter 11, this is on page 804 in the Bible that's provided there. Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, chapters are the big numbers and verses are the small numbers. So we're in chapter 11 today. Hosea is a book that... Honestly, I haven't spent a lot of time in. Um, it's a book that I've often overlooked. And it's a book that at least the churches that I've been a part of, uh, I can't remember ever, you know, studying the book of Hosea in my life uh, in, in a church setting. Um, in fact, uh, at one point in my life, I had the books of the Bible memorized. And uh, now I'm a little bit fuzzy on the minor prophets. I should probably go back and do that. Your pastor should probably be able to find the book in the Bible. Um, but most of the time, what I do and what I had to do this week looking for Hosea was just go to the minor prophets and kind of hope that I got there. You know, um, this is a story that's often overlooked. Um, but here's the, the, the context, the setting of what's happening in Hosea. Um, Hosea was a prophet in Israel around the same time as Isaiah, around the same time as Micah. These are stories about, um, it's a time in Israel's history where they were in rebellion against God. And there was a lot of political tension. The Assyrian empire was growing and continuing to be a threat to them. And um, the prophets were warning the people to repent and turn back to God or else the Assyrians would invade. And Hosea is unique because Hosea is a story that goes along with the prophecy. And the story is of Hosea himself. God goes to Hosea and commands him to marry this woman who will be unfaithful to him. And he tells him after she's unfaithful to him to continue to pursue her and to continue to bring her home and to continue to care for her. And he raises a family with children and it's not clear if these are his kids or not. 
And yet he's supposed to love them. And he's supposed to love his wife. And the reason that God tells Hosea to do that is because Hosea's life is going to be a symbol for the nation of Israel that this is what God, this is what I, God says to Israel through Hosea, this is what I am doing for you. That even though, and so this is the whole message of the book, even though you have been unfaithful to me, I will remain faithful to you. That's the point of the book. And so throughout the book, there are these um, series of poems that happen. And one of those poems is in Hosea chapter 11. That's what we're looking at today. It starts like this, verse one. This is God speaking. And he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Before Israel could do anything, I loved him. Before Israel knew how to walk with me, I loved him. Before Israel knew how to, how to keep the law, I loved him. Before I even gave Israel the law, I loved him. Why? Because he's like my child. He's speaking collectively about the nation as a whole, as if it's his son. And then he says, when he was a child, I loved him. And, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And what is this a reference to? This is a reference to the Exodus, Israel's story. We studied Exodus. We spent the first 13 weeks of, of 2022 here talking about that story. Israel was enslaved in Egypt. God came to them and rescued them and brought them out of Egypt. He called them out of slavery in Egypt and he brought them to the land where they're living. And God says, what I did for you as a nation, it's like I was doing it because you're my son. And this is not the first place where that metaphor gets used. The idea of God being a father and Israel being God's son. This is actually used in the Exodus story. So in Exodus chapter four, verse 22, God tells Moses, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And so then he goes on to tell him, so tell him to go, let my people go. It's my son that you're oppressing in Egypt. It's my son that I love. And so God brings Israel out of Egypt. That's who God is. And that's what God has done for Israel. The problem is in verse two. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. You remember that part of the story? They've been crying out, we hate it here. We hate it in Egypt. We're miserable. And they were. But as God is leading them out, they come to some water that they're going to have to cross. 
They see the Egyptians pursuing them and they're afraid. And they say, we want to go back. They get through the water miraculously. Then they start eating food that they don't like. And they say, we want to go back. You hated it there. Yeah, but we hate it here. We're always in Egypt. At least there we got to eat food that we liked. At least there we had a schedule we could depend on. Even as they come out of Egypt, even as God is rescuing them, they're saying, we liked it better there. We like those people better than you, God. Even as he rescues them, they're being unfaithful. And then the rest of verse two, they kept sacrificing to the Baals, these idols, and burning offerings to idols. God gave them a whole book about how to make sacrifices to him. But they, their complaint was not, oh man, the book of Leviticus is so complex. Instead, they went and learned new ways to sacrifice. And they started sacrificing to false gods. They're unfaithful to God. And yet, verse three, God says, but it was I who taught Ephraim. That's another name for Israel. It was I who taught Israel to walk, taking them by the hand. But they never knew that I healed them. He's continuing the, the father and son imagery here. The father is there helping Israel learn to walk, learn to follow, taking Israel by the hand but they don't acknowledge what he's doing for them. Verse four, I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. He says, rather than putting these oppressive, rather than binding them with this oppressive yoke, as the Egyptians did, rather than forcing them to build bricks so they could build these massive things. I bound myself to them through a loving covenant. Rather than force them to serve me and bring me food, I bent down to give them food. He's contrasting his leadership of the people with their oppressors. And yet, even in the midst of that, Israel has been unfaithful to God. And so, God says, is about to say in verse five, because of that, exile is coming. Because you've been unfaithful, you're going to be disciplined like a son. Like a son who's disobedient, you're going to be disciplined. And this is not new news to them. This is exactly what God had warned them about when he rescued them out of Egypt. 
and God is faithful. And so God keeps his promises. And so verse five, Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be his king because they refused to repent. Assyria is going to come and conquer. You're not going back to Egypt, but you're going back to Egypt. Assyria is going to invade. Verse six, a sword will whirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. Verse seven, my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. Exile is coming. Well, I thought the whole point of the book is that God is faithful to unfaithful people. Exile doesn't sound like God's being faithful. Why send them into exile then if you're so faithful? I thought you were supposed to love them. I thought this was your son. And as Israel launches that question, that accusation to God, here's how God responds. Verse eight. How can I I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? people who are not Israel. I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. Now this translation of this little word that says change of heart makes it sound like God's lost his mind and then found it again. He's changing his mind. Okay, uh, I was mad, but I guess I'm not anymore. But that's not the idea of the word. Another way to translate this could be Um, that his heart recoils or the idea is that it's a heart that is breaking. It's a heart that is being overthrown. This is the same word that could be used for overthrowing a city. As the city of Jerusalem gets overthrown, so God's heart is being torn down. God's heart is breaking as this is coming. The exile will not be evidence that God has abandoned his people. God is still with his people. How could I give you up? How could I turn you over? It's breaking my heart, God says. Verse nine, I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. God says what you would expect if you were just looking at this from a human, a purely human perspective. Anyone who endures this much unfaithfulness should not continue to have love. They should have anger. And they should remain in their anger. But God says, but I am not a human being. I am God. I'm the Holy One. And so for that reason, I will continue to be faithful. Then he says, verse 10, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the West. 
from the place where they're going to be exiled. Verse 11. They will be roused like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. God says, you are going to be invaded. You are going to be exiled, but you will come back someday because I love you. And so here's the point of Isaiah, uh, sorry, Hosea 11. God brought Israel out of Egypt and he will bring them out of exile. God brought his people, his son out of Egypt and he will bring them out of exile. God will be faithful to his people. Now, that's Hosea 11. What in the world does that have to do with Jesus and Joseph and Mary going to Egypt? When you read Matthew 2.15, and it says, this happened to fulfill the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. What is Matthew doing there? Is he saying, Okay, I was reading the Old Testament one time and I remember this line about God's son coming out of Egypt and I think that Jesus is God's son and so that sounds good. Just put that in there. And uh, in Hosea, it sure seems like this is talking about Israel coming out of Egypt, but I guess really it's about Jesus or something. Jesus is always the answer, right? So just, is that what Matthew's doing? No. There are different types of prophecies. There are different ways that prophecy is fulfilled. One of those ways is what we call direct fulfillment. That is, in the Old Testament, something was predicted and it comes true. We looked at an example of that in this series in Micah chapter 5. It's predicted that this shepherd king who will rule over Israel will be born in Bethlehem. That's a prediction that's directly fulfilled. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's direct fulfillment. But there's also another type of prophecy called typology, or there's typological fulfillment. Typology is where a pattern is developed in the Old Testament and or a story is given in the Old Testament or a person does something in, in the Old Testament and it becomes like a pattern that will be completed in the New Testament. The full expression, the full completion is seen in the New Testament. And here in Matthew 2 verse 15, we have an example of typology. A pattern is being developed in the Old Testament that finds its completion in the New Testament. And so, how does Matthew make that connection? How does Matthew know that? And so why does he quote from Hosea 11? And the answer is that the authors of scripture are much smarter than we are. <laughs> That's not true. They're not smarter. They're just human beings. But they did know their Bibles better than we, than we do. 
And so when they quote from a place in the Old Testament, they expect that you know all the connections related to that verse. And so calling Israel the son of God, which we showed you in Exodus 4, that is a pattern in the Old Testament, that God is like a father to Israel. So we showed you that in Exodus chapter four, it shows up a few other times in Exodus. But then this idea of Israel being like a son to God really picks up steam in the book of Numbers. And it happens through this man named Balaam. And briefly, I want to share with you Balaam's story because this is something that Hosea's readers would have known. This is something that Matthew expects his readers to know. So um, the story of Balaam goes like this. God had rescued Israel, his son, out of Egypt, and he was taking them to the promised land. On their way, news about them is spreading to all of these surrounding nations who currently live in the promised land. And the reason the news is spreading is because how did this group of slaves escape the most powerful empire in the world? And they're hearing stories about these miraculous things that were happening in Egypt and how the sea parted and... They're terrified. And then as Egypt is on their way and people are starting to hear stories about them, they also have to fight a few battles. And they win these battles in some miraculous ways. It's like, man, you guys really shouldn't beat them, but what the heck? And so all of these nations start to be afraid of the Israelites. And so one of those nations um, decides, here's what I'm going to do. I don't want to have to fight a battle against Israel So I'll just curse them. And that seems ridiculous to us, but you have to remember that they live in the ancient Near East and um, they were part of what's called a fear-based culture. And this is still true for many parts of the world today. Many people still believe like this today, that there are spells that you can cast on people and that future blessing or future cursing is based on how you respond to the gods and the kinds of blessings or curses that are given to you by spellcasters or witches. And so that's how this foreign king believed. He wanted to curse Israel. And so he went and found the best spellcaster that he could find. His name was Balaam. So he hires Balaam to come and curse Israel, to put a spell on Israel. And Balaam's like, sure, I'll take some money to do that. And so he makes his way to curse Israel. And when he goes to curse them, he's unable to. And he ends up having this encounter with the Lord. And he ends up, instead of offering a curse on Israel, he actually blesses them. And he blesses them in these four oracles. You can go read this in the book of Numbers 22 through 24. In the second oracle, the second blessing that he's given, he says this about the nation of Israel. He says, God brings you out of Egypt and God will be like the horn of an ox for you. That is, he'll be your strong protection. And you, Israel, will be like a lion. You'll be powerful in this region. Rather than being devoured, you will be the lion. He says, and then in his third oracle, he says the exact same thing, except for instead of saying it about Israel, the nation, he says it about 
one Israelite king who will come. He says, there will be a king from Israel that God will bring out of Egypt and that God will be like the horn of an ox for, and this king will be like a lion. And so he makes the exact same prophecy about Israel and about this king who will come from Israel. Here's a chart that summarizes that for you. Uh, Charts are helpful for me, so I hope that this is helpful to you. So notice that this blessing, this prophecy that Balaam gives is the exact same except for the pronouns are different. And that's intentional. One was about the nation as a whole, the son of God. But one was about the king, the son of God. And so here in Balaam's prophecy, a type is being developed. Remember, a type is a pattern in the Old Testament that will find its fulfillment somewhere in Israel's future. And the type is this, that Israel as a nation is actually a type of the Messiah. The pattern that Israel will follow will be the pattern that the Messiah will follow. Israel's story will be the Messiah's story. The Messiah, the king who's coming will be like Israel. Hosea picks up on this. And Matthew picks up on this. And so Matthew is saying that God's son, Israel, is a pattern that God's true son, the Messiah, Jesus, will follow. And he's actually designed his gospel to help us make that connection. And so here's a second chart that shows the parallels between Israel's exodus and Jesus's exodus. Israel journeyed to Egypt. Jesus journeyed to Egypt. Israel, while in Egypt, there was an evil, wicked king who attacked a group of children. Jesus, while in Egypt, there was an oppressive, wicked king who attacked children. God called Israel out of Egypt. God in Matthew chapter two will call Jesus out of Egypt. When they exit Egypt, what does Israel do? They have to go and they, the first thing they do is pass through the sea. What's the next thing Jesus is going to do in Matthew chapter three? Once he grows up, he's going to be baptized and pass through the Jordan. Then what does Israel do? They journey in the wilderness. What does Jesus do after he's baptized? He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. We could keep going. What does Israel do after they journey in the wilderness? They go to Mount Sinai where God gives them the law. And what happens in Matthew Chapter five, right after Jesus returns, says he goes up to the mountain and he sat down and began to teach them. 
he begins to give the law. Matthew is trying to help us see the type that Israel is a pattern that the Messiah, Jesus, will follow. Israel's story will be Jesus's story. Jesus is going to relive Israel's story. Israel, the son of God, they had a journey. Jesus, the true son of God, will relive that journey. That's the point. So, those are the first two questions. What's the prophecy that Matthew's talking about in Matthew 2.15? Hosea chapter 11. How does Jesus fulfill that prophecy? Well, it's not a direct fulfillment like Hosea was talking like, yeah, someday God's son's going to go to Egypt. But instead, it's a typological fulfillment. Jesus is the true son of God, the true Israelite. Jesus will relive the story of Israel. That's the point of the fulfillment. So then the third question. How can that help you walk with God in Egypt? What can this teach you about how to walk with God in Egypt? Well, it's helpful to ask, why does the Messiah, why does Jesus need to relive Israel's story? And the reason is because Israel failed. Israel was unfaithful to God. Jesus, the true son, he will not fail. He will be faithful. And this means that Jesus could look at the nation of Israel and say, I have come to be the king and I know what it's like to walk where you have walked. See, if Jesus the Messiah doesn't come and relive Israel's story, Israel always has the accusation against God. God, do you know what it's like to be in Egypt. Jesus can say, yes. Israel can say, you can't even relate to what it's like for an evil, wicked, oppressive king to come and try to kill our family. Jesus can say, yes, I can. Israel could say, God, you don't know what it's like to have to fulfill the law. You don't know what it's like to have to obey these commands. Jesus can say, yes, I do. But God, you don't know what it's like to be taken outside of the city of Jerusalem. And you don't know what it's like to be exiled and destroyed. And Jesus can say, yes, I do. 
Jesus relived Israel's story in order to redeem Israel's story. Jesus relived Israel's story in order to redeem Israel's story. Jesus goes outside of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel could say, God, do you have any idea what it's like to be crushed for sin and to be torn away from the land of the living. And Jesus can say, yes, I do know, but I am being crushed not for my own sin, but I am being crushed for yours so that yours can be redeemed. Jesus is reliving Israel's story so that he can redeem it. And by his wounds, they can be healed. God promised the nation of Israel that he would roar again like a lion and bring them back to the land. And Jesus relives Israel's story. Jesus is crushed for sin. He's crucified on a cross and he is raised from the dead and brought back to the land of the living. This is really cool. I was thinking about this this week and one of the things I do to prep is I was just reading the book of Hosea several times this week and I can't, uh, chapter six. Um, This isn't the Bible that I read from and so sometimes when I uh, get up here, I'm like, I can't remember what, because I can picture it in my mind in another Bible. But this is cool. Um, Hosea chapter six In light of all of this that we've talked about, think about these words to the nation of Israel. This is not about Jesus, but it's fulfilled by Jesus. It's not a prophecy directly about Jesus, but it's a a prophecy to Israel that will be completed by Jesus. Uh, Hosea chapter six, verse one. Come, let's return to the Lord. For he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. Verse two, he will revive us after two days. And on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Is that true? Jesus says, yes, it is. Look at me, the true Israelite, the true son of God, the one who has come to relive Israel's story and to redeem it. Jesus fulfills Israel's story. This is why the apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter four, when the time came to completion, listen to this. When the time came to completion, that is when all that was written, when it was time for all of that to be fulfilled, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, Jesus has come as the fulfillment of Israel's story. He's saying the same thing that Matthew's saying in Matthew 2, 15. He's saying, Jesus has come, the true son of God, born of a woman, born under, under the law, that is subject to the law's requirements. Jesus is required 
to do all the standards, all the things that Israel is required to do. And he does it faithfully. Why? Verse five, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's why he did it. The true son of God has come to relive Israel's story so that you can become a son of God. So what can this teach us about how to walk with God in Egypt? Two things. First, the fact that Jesus relives Israel's story in order to redeem it teaches us first that Jesus knows our way. Jesus knows our way. Another way to say that would be to say that Jesus understands you. Jesus gets you. The reason that I say it the way that I say it, Jesus knows our way, is because Psalm 142, verse 3, David says, Although my spirit is weak within me, Lord, you know my way. That is, you know what it's like to walk where I walk. That has become literally true in the person of Jesus. Jesus knows your way. That means that whatever you're going through, God really can say to you, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm Emmanuel. God is not a God who is so aloof to the problems of this world that he couldn't possibly know what it's like to have the life that you have. Jesus knows our way. Jesus grew up as a teenager. He knows what it's like to battle acne. He knows what it's like to have family who misunderstands him. He knows what it's like to have an appearance that no one is drawn to. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have people turn against him. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows our way. That means that you can trust him. Even when you're in Egypt, you can trust him. He knows what it's like to go to Egypt. One of my favorite scenes um, is from um, The Magician's Nephew, which is the first in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And um, the story is about this boy named Diggory um, and he finds himself in Narnia in this land that's magical and crazy. And um, he's having a good time, but he's also homesick and he misses his, his mom. And his mom is very sick. And she's on her deathbed and he's not sure what's going to happen to her. And so even though he's doing these things in Narnia, he's still, his heart is at home with mom. And while he's in Narnia, he meets the lion, Aslan. 
And Aslan has a task that he wants Diggory to complete. He wants him to go and, and go on this voyage and, and do this thing. And Diggory wants to because everybody respects Aslan and everybody talks about how great Aslan is and how powerful Aslan is. And, and he's been impressed by Aslan. And so he wants to do this thing for him. But he also is like, if you're so powerful, what about my mom? I just want to go back home and be with my mom. Don't make me go do this thing. So here's what happens. Diggory says, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face, that is yellowish orange, was bent down near his own and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment, he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. When he looks into the lion's eyes, he realizes there are tears in the eyes. He is not ignorant to the situation that Diggory is in. He's even sorrier about it than Diggory is himself. And when you look into the eyes of Jesus, it is a thousand times more true. Jesus sees you and he knows your way. That's the first thing we can learn. What else can this teach us about walking with God in Egypt? First, Jesus knows our way. Second, we can know his. We can know his way. God says to Israel and he says to Jesus, out of Egypt, I called my son. And you, through Jesus, can be a son of God. And the way of Jesus out of Egypt can be your way too. Jesus, like Israel, suffered, but at the end of that suffering, there was glory. At the end of being mocked as king, there is a real throne. At the end of Jesus' story is not some metaphorical rise, like, well, people hated you and you suffered, but at least now there's a good story about somebody who did good stuff even though they were oppressed. That is not the story. The story is that he suffered and then he rose from the dead and there is glory to be had. And just like Jesus, you can know his way. His way can be your way. At the end of your suffering, you can rise. At the end of your suffering, there can be glory for you. You can be raised from the dead just like Jesus. You can ascend just like Jesus. And you can reign over all things someday with Jesus, Revelation says. His way can be ours. God says, out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Are you on the path out of Egypt? The only path out of Egypt is through the sun. And that's Jesus. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, he, that's God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is a new exodus that you can be part of. 1 Thessalonians chapter four, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters concerning those who are asleep, that is those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's saying the exodus that Jesus had from Egypt can be your exodus. God is calling his son out of Egypt. He called Israel out of Egypt. He has called Jesus out of Egypt. And because of Jesus, the son, you can also be called out of, Jesus, called out of Egypt. Jesus knows our way and we can know his let me pray for you. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for protecting him and preserving him. Thank you for calling him out of Egypt. Thank you that, that in him, the unfaithfulness of Adam the unfaithfulness of Israel can be redeemed. So God, I want to ask that your spirit would be active now. If there are those who are, are crushed by disappointment or suffering today, would you help them to fix their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God, if there are those who are trapped in their sins today, would you call them out of Egypt? Would you help them to see Jesus, the baby who was born, grew up, crucified, and was resurrected for sinners? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?